Healing can happen when people share their stories. Welcome to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. Discover true stories from those who were called to sit in the witness chair. Experience their journey through the legal process and beyond. This podcast brings to light the trauma and stress caused by testifying under oath and offers resources by talking with witnesses, key litigators, and mental wellness professionals to assist with different approaches one can utilize to prepare to take the stand and how to heal after the encounter. And now, here's your host, Juliet Huck. Welcome, everyone, to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. Coming to you from, again, sunny Los Angeles. Today, I am so honored and thrilled to have actually a client of mine who is speaking with me today. He is, Sam has practiced his entire focus on litigating the firm's catastrophic personal injury cases and complex commercial litigation. He, like some of my other guests, are AV preeminent ranking, which if you remember, which was the highest ranking in legal ethics and practices. He is consistently recognized as a rising star in Nevada's legal elite, and I can attest to that myself. I can see that coming from him. Um, he's a longstanding member of the Multi-Million Dollar Advocates Forum, has been recognized as one of the top 40 under 40 multiple times. And he's also, which I didn't know this about you, Sam, is an appointed court, appointed special advocate supporting and promoting courtroom advocacy and abuse for neglected children. I, I'm just, I can't wait to talk about that. In 2018, I did not know this either about you, where you did some pro bono, you were named as a pro bono change attorney of the year for your work in transgender individual obtaining name gender changes on exclusively pro bono basis. So, wow, from the LGBT community, myself, I just thank you. I had, I had no idea that you're working on that. And, uh, and I knew you in 2018, so I'm yeah. really honored for that. So I want to welcome Sam Murkovich. Welcome, Sam. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So you're in Las Vegas, and we've worked on, you know, quite a few cases together. But I want to kind of go back to the beginning a little bit, like what what made you want to be a litigator? You know, it wasn't something that I set out to do when I started law school. Uh, It kind of came gradually after my first year of law school, I externed with a federal court judge here in Las Vegas. And that's really when I saw litigation firsthand. And I had no interest in doing it until I started to see it and thought, Actually, this is kind of cool. And there was a competitive side to it that appealed to me. The following fall, uh, by chance, I was hired as a law clerk at a local personal injury firm where I got to see a little bit more of the litigation side and it continued to appeal to me. And I took to it such that by my third year of law school, I was spending far more time working at that office than I was at school and getting a pretty good command, I felt, of the litigation side of things. And so when I was offered uh, a position as an attorney to stay on at that firm, I took it and uh, continued from there. So you're with Campbell Williams in Las Vegas. How long have you been with them? Just about 10 years now. Just about. That's that's a good run. Let me tell you, that's... uh... And they're a great firm. I worked with them for a long time too, with uh, Don and and uh, Colby. So, so what what do you like about going to trial? Well, y- you like it during it and after 
in the buildup to trial, I find myself constantly questioning why I do this at all and why the particular case I'm about to take to trial is going to trial at all and whether we're crazy for taking it to trial or not. And then after about the first half hour, hour of trial or so, I kind of settle in and then I really enjoy it and continue to enjoy it even after the trial. And that is the case even when the trials don't always go the way that we hope. Right. Sometimes we lose trials or we're not as successful at trial as we hoped we would be. But I'm pretty happy and proud to say that even in those cases, um, I'm happy with the performance that our office is able to put on, how we're able to represent the client and generally still come away from it feeling like you know, we did the right thing and we did a good job. That's great. So that's uh, we talk about the build up to trial. I'm usually in that process. So I've seen that for 25 plus years, which is, it is stressful. It's, it's, uh, it makes you question a lot of things in your life. <laughs> it makes you question the world in general sometimes and, and witnesses, you know, so I, I really want to talk today because this podcast obviously is about the witness side of life, but, you know, I want to go back to you promoting the courtroom advocacy and abuse for ne- neglected children. Have you ever had to prep a child for a stand or a young person for the stand? I have, but not in that role. So as a court-appointed special advocate or CASA, that's not a lawyer function. Anyone, uh, any adult can go out and take the CASA training and become a CASA. And what you do in that position is you go to court on behalf of a child who's in the foster care system, and you're there to speak on their behalf. And I want to emphasize, again, this is not, it comes a little easier to me than most in terms of being in the courtroom because I do that day in and day out. But most causes are not lawyers. They're just adults who want to help out. And you go to court on behalf of that child and represent the child's interests. And the reason that's unique and and so important is because there are a lot of people speaking for the child, but they also have some self-interest, foster parents people in the foster care system and see child protective services, they have dozens, sometimes hundreds of children that they're responsible for. And that child represents a file on their desk. And so you question sometimes what their goal is. Is it to get a file off of their desk or is it to really say what's best for this particular child in this moment when it might not be the most convenient thing for them? And so the CASA is so important because the CASA has one child that they're responsible for, not not more than that, uh, but for in the case of maybe siblings. And you go and you just say what's best for the child and making sure that the other people in the system are communicating with one another and that they're all doing what they should be doing, even if it's not the easiest thing. And uh, I'll tell you, it was shocking to me when I started finding out that, you know, People within the same system aren't always communicating so well, and they're not necessarily doing what's best. Sometimes they're doing what makes their lives easier. And so really, really important function. I'm not currently representing a child right now, but I have in the past. And even though my child has aged out of the foster care system and is now in college, I still keep in touch with him regularly. And I uh, am proud to report that he's planning on going to law school here in a couple of years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, that's, that's fantastic. Well, what an amazing service and what CASA can be. And I don't think that most people even realize it exists. And I just think that, that, that when I read that, I was like, we would definitely need to talk about that today because yeah. that's something that 
the child, you know, so I, I want to talk about young witnesses and, and children because obviously they can't represent themselves in a situation like this, right? right. And um, but have you ever have you ever had to really like put a what's the youngest person you've ever had to put on the stand? I've had to depose a child that was depose. nine years old, and uh, okay. it, it takes uh, you, you really have to break down what you normally do to it, it's really most reduced form and then kind of build it back up again and go back to, you know, the starting point, I would say in that case. And I think with most child witnesses is, do you know what it means to tell the truth? And what is the difference between telling the truth and telling a lie? And you start at that most basic level and and kind of build on it from there. So I usually like to ask this question to my legal guests. Do you think there's different forms of the truth? Yeah. I think uh, I think there is. Yeah, and it's especially I don't know if you've seen it, but I, I've seen it in younger witnesses where they're you know everybody's got their own you know the same person can two different people can see the same car crash and explain it completely different, right? I mean, we I think we all pretty much know that, but if you also see it through a child's eyes, but yeah, so this young person was it your client or was it on the other side? It was in a case where I represented the family of a young boy who was the cousin of the uh, the child witness I was going to be deposing. And unfortunately, in that case, he was with his cousin in the wave pool of a water park and his cousin drowned. And so it was a difficult deposition because he was the last person to have seen his cousin before he passed away. So, yeah, so I... Uh... I want to talk about that too, because that that's the trauma side of this, and how how does how do you prep a young person, let alone the parents around the child, is because obviously they've lived through a traumatic situation, right? Right. And we'll talk about another case you and I've worked on here just in a few minutes. But to prep to relive that trauma is it, and I'm I'm talking about this only for the fact is if we ever looked at witness prep through a holistic lens, not just go in with a jury consultant or a PhD, but through ways of therapy or meditation or some ways to how do we help them get to this place, and then what do we do after they get off the stand, right? Mm-hmm. So, how did you handle that with like the family? At the start, it's it's really an ask of, of mom and dad and making sure, because obviously if they say no, that that's it. I'm not aware of in in a civil case, especially any ability that you would have to compel a child to testify, nor would I want to ever be in the position of, of compelling a child to go through that if his parents didn't want him to. In this case, I, I met with the child and his mom and explained what I was doing, why I felt it was important, and why his testimony was something I thought would be uh, particularly important in the case. And mom thought about it for a while and ultimately decided that it's something that we could do. And how did you prep them? Just did you just work with them day to day? Just like you said, starting from the basics and then. So your process? we had a, a couple of meetings and I think the initial meeting was more trying to just form a relationship between me and the child and trying to reduce the maybe apprehension that I think he would feel insofar as who is this guy? You know, he's an adult, he's a lawyer, 
you know, we're in a law office, which is probably a, a stuffy environment for anyone, let alone a, a child under 10 years old. And so it's trying to break that down and, and getting a level of comfort. So with me, it started with drinks and snacks and, you know, having a snack while we talk a little bit, not talking about the case so much as talking about school and other things that we can talk about. And then as the relationship forms, maybe then getting into uh, the things that need to be the subject of the deposition. And in that case, I tried to do that with graphics more than anything else. Um, we had big poster boards that he was able to go and point out, you know, the different aspects of the water park. And we started with, you know, this is the water park. Do you, re you remember it? What was your favorite ride? What did you like about it? What did you not like about it? And then gradually inching forward to, in this case, the wave pool where the event happened and, you know, getting into the, eventually the, the tougher details. Yeah, that's the sensitivity of, and I, I can see that with you, Sam, you're a very sensitive lawyer. And I, I think that's very commendable to be able to have to be in that it's a very fine line of sensitivity to relive trauma because, you know, trauma is the disconnection of self and how do you bring that connection back? And so is, this is not the case in 2018, right? This is a different case. Is that right? This is a case that was filed a little bit afterwards. Okay. All right. So the case, we, so the case you and I worked on, the family involved was also needing to testify. Correct. So can you talk a little bit about that case? Yeah, we have also, or I also worked on a case, Juliet, that you were kind enough to, uh, to help us with. And this was a case that was also an aquatic related case. It was a young boy who was five years old and suffered a non-fatal drowning, which is a term that really shouldn't be used. It's technically improper because there's no doubt that this uh, child drowned he was resuscitated after the drowning um, and survived. He's still with us today, but he survived with a incredibly severe brain injury that limits almost every activity of his daily living. And so in that case, he, he's unable to speak, so he couldn't testify even as a, a child witness. So his parents were the, the primary witnesses in that case. Yeah. And so working with parents in this situation, how do you approach them? In, in a similar way. I, I, I think the best thing is to, you have to form a relationship where the clients understand that you're sensitive to the fact that they are in the situation that they are in and that you're representing their best interests as a lawyer, first and foremost, but also you're somebody that, you know, cares about doing the right thing and, and making sure that they're protected in other ways as well. So a little more handling in, in a gentle, soft, sensitive way, because especially you're sitting in this traumatic situation. And I know that just because I, I'm a survivor. I, I don't like using the word survivor, but a warrior of childhood trauma. And, and that, that moment of having to relive it or rethink it, and then you have somebody asking you questions about it, you know, as, as parents in that situation, did they get any help? Did, did they try to find a way to not just be in the legal system? Cause you know, obviously that can be very overwhelming. I mean, how, how do they, do you handle that with them to say what other kind of help they might be able to get? So I am a big proponent of 
recommending other forms of help that I'm certainly not qualified to give. And I think it's beneficial for everyone. And I just communicate that to the clients as my own personal belief, which is mental health is important. And I think people should ap- uh, approach mental health in a way that's uh, similar to athletic health. There's certainly no concerns or stigmas about an athlete who goes to see a chiropractor or a physical therapist on a regular basis. And we all know that athletes don't see professionals of that nature only when they're hurt. They do it on an ongoing basis, even when they're healthy, because it's good for you. And I tell clients that, you know, just for me, that's something I think is great. I think everyone should approach mental health the same way. And I recommend that they do it, but I do that without pushing it as something I think they should do for the case or they should go see a provider that I know. I I don't like to go that far because that's not really why I'm making the recommendation. Right. Well, and it's, it's, I think going back to what you started with relationship, if you have a relationship, then they trust you. To me, relationship is trust. And when you have that trust in that relationship, they'll start to believe you. Right. And I mean, I know clients come to me because they trust me. Um, They'll ask my opinion or, and that's what I want this podcast to be is, is a resource for people that if they had to go through something like this, you know, I've got all kinds of healers, therapists, um, psychologists that are going to come on. But I, the key to that is to figure out how to at least bring up the subject because mental health is such a stigma. And I don't know if you know this about me or not, but I'm a, a breathwork meditation practitioner yeah. as well. I'm certified. And another reason I want to start the podcast is because I want just want to think about how prepping witnesses, because, you know, especially a child, children to me, and and correct me if I'm wrong, you know, they're just more curious, but adults are much more protected, right? And we're that unknown, I think almost makes it scarier sometimes for adults because they don't know what the courtroom looks like. They don't know what the judge looks like. They don't know what the jury looks like. And it's that unknown that, um, so do you ever walk them through, this is what the courtroom looks like or uh, in that kind of process. So there's not this big fear walking in the door. Yeah. I think uh, a benefit that I've seen to child witnesses is that they don't have the same issue or ability to sort of think ahead as to if I say this, somebody's going to attack me this way. They're, they're almost better at just saying, here's what I recall. Here's, you know, A, B, C, and D. And I'm not worried about what's going to happen down the line because they may not have the ability to really grasp how that could happen. Whereas with an adult witness, you you encounter people who are really concerned about, well, if I say this, somebody's going to judge me one way or the other. And, you know, so they're trying to maybe dance through raindrops or very uh, apprehensive about saying anything at all because they're afraid it'll, it'll come back on them somehow. Right. Have you ever been deposed? No. I have, and it's not fun. <laughs> it's not, it, because you're right. That's exactly, you know, I, I've mentioned this before and I think a previous podcast where everybody's like, oh, you're going to be great at it. You're in the business. And I was like, no, it is a totally different subject matter because you're exactly right. It goes through your head. If they say this, what, you know, what's the chess game? And then you think you're going to outsmart each other and then it just goes sideways. And that's why to me, I think, you know, looking at young people and, you know, this whole thing, you know, came down for me. And I know I've mentioned this before too, during the George Floyd trial, the first one, I just watched those young people testifying and 
all they did was pick up their cell phone. And the repercussion of that changed their lives. And some were not even 18 to be able to be on camera, you know, in front of the world and just was wondering how they're doing today. So that's why I go back and ask, you know, how's your family doing today that can talk a little bit about them and how they're doing? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm happy to report that, you know, they're doing well. They've been able to, to move on with their lives as much as they could. And uh, the reports I get are, are very, very positive. And, you know, that makes me incredibly happy because unfortunately that's, that's not always the case. Right. And I met them and they were just, I mean, wow, what powerful people just to be able to, to get through the process and yet not skip a beat with their family. And, um, you know, that's, that's something that's so, I give my parents a lot of credit after my brother passed away that they, you know, they tried to do what they could to stay in that day to day. And I, I know that your client was just amazing at that and feeling with his brother and everybody else. And I just, I think, you know, having that comfort that you brought to them as well, has really been part of the process of really, you know, for a horrible situation, you want to try and find the best solution, right? And so when you first meet with a family like that, how do you explain that it doesn't always go your way? Oh, it's a, it's a gradual process. And I think uh, it's important to keep in mind the fact that when I'm meeting with someone in a case of of that magnitude, which is most of the injury cases that we handle happen to be, you know, catastrophic cases in every sense of the word. And the important thing to remind the clients of is that it's not going to be a a quick process. It's going to take uh, an incredibly long time. The case that we're discussing uh, lasted over seven years. And so there's a lot of time to build that relationship. And so you, you start slowly and and you build that trust as you go Uh, in terms of explaining the fact that there are no guarantees in any lawsuit. I think that typically the way that I do that is just by, there are no guarantees, but we're willing to invest in you and your case. If you're willing to invest in us and trust us to navigate you through the process. And, you know, I think it's important to really, you have to foster that trusting relationship with the clients early on and have them buy in on the fact that when they're hiring you as an attorney, hopefully what they're hiring is, is your judgment. And, and that goes for doing the right thing, you know, irrespective of, of the case, but doing right by the client. And if you, if you can foster that relationship, that's kind of the, the basis, I would say, of, of having a successful client relationship going through all of the, uh, the hard parts of these cases that exist. So when you have someone that's in that situation, knowing they have to go up against Goliath at times, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, because it could be, like you said, a big corporation they have to go against. How do you walk them through that process of like, you know, you might be the little dog here, but, you know, I know Campbell Williams has got a big bark. So, I mean, not everybody knows that. And uh, how do you, how do you talk them through that, that part of the process that, you know, they're going to be small, you know, it's a David and Goliath fight sometimes, right? First and foremost, uh, the client's truth is on the client's side a hundred percent of the time. Right. And, and making sure the client understands that there's not a question that anybody can ask them that will change a yes to a no. They are telling their truthful story. And that doesn't change because somebody posed a question a certain way. 
So number one, if they're being honest throughout, which they always will be, they, they don't have anything or shouldn't have anything to be fearful of because their true story at the end of the day won't change first and foremost. And secondly, letting the client know that we're going to invest as much time as they want. And a lot of times even more time than they want in making sure that they're fully prepared for the deposition and that, or, or, or trial testimony. And that means covering every potential question that they may be asked. And so when I'm prepping a witness, whether it's an expert, a businessman, a client in a personal injury case, what I tell them is that I'm going to prep you so that you will have faced every question you're going to get in your deposition. And I'm going to try and make it far harder in the prep because my goal is that after your deposition, you're going to tell me it was way harder when we were doing the prep meetings with you. And so when I'm doing my job well, that's that's the response I get. And, you know, I think people forget that sometimes it's not your lawyer beating up on you. It's really just prepping you like you like go back to the athletic, you know, the coach, yeah. coach pushing you, pushing you, pushing you harder every practice in order to get to that level that you really need to be at. So that when you get out there, it, it's it's easy. It's simple. And I think people that look for attorneys should consider that, you know, are they going to push me? Because a lot of people don't know the process, so they don't know they're being pushed, right? And they just think, you know, this person's beating up on me, and it really doesn't. That's not what it is. It's really preparation, which I think is great. But, but how? So how do you handle if a, like one of your clients gets beat up on the stand? What do you, how do you handle that with your witness or your own client? Prepping them for that experience, I, I think you have to do a, a few things first. I, and this may sound callous, but I. I generally operate under the belief that I need to beat them up more in practice so that I ask more offensive questions than they're going to face. And I do it with a a worse attitude than maybe a a hypothetical, you know, mean attorney might do. And I think coming from me who, you know, obviously it comes with it in advance, a big disclaimer to the client that I'm putting my bad lawyer hat on now, and I'm going to be a big jerk to you. And I don't mean anything I'm about to say to you, but I have to have you hear it first because I don't want you to hear these bad things for the first time when you're under oath and at a deposition. And we go through it. And I think it helps desensitize them or at least make it a little less raw when they encounter that behavior. And they don't always do. In a a lot of tragic cases, some defense lawyers are really meek because they know how bad it is and and they're not bad people and they don't want to be discourteous or impolite to people who are already dealing with a major trauma, but that doesn't mean all of them are that way. And that's why out of an abundance of caution, you have to take the client through that a few times first and in prep so that they understand what's could be coming and, and how bad and infuriating it could be. Yeah. And then that's why I, you know, I, I go back to of like, you know, I've had witnesses that, you know, that after that prep, you know, I would ask them to do a mindful, you know, just some kind of mindful experience just to like exercise, just to kind of come back a little bit instead of going home and just walking out the door at the law firm and being like, what the heck was that, you know, and just to kind of get your feet on the ground and get grounded a little bit. And it's, it's something that I'm hoping I can start opening the conversation of doing of Let's, you know, just like you said, I like the athlete analogy only because it's, 
it's so true. You know, they go out there and they, I mean, I think about the the guy that misses the field goal in front of the entire stadium and loses the game and where's his mental health after that, right? So when you're looking at someone in, in trial that's gone through such stress and such heartache, I just think that's a really great analogy, Sam, on how to how to look at that. So well, I am super, super grateful about our conversation today. Just to support me in coming and talking. And you are such a, I mean, you're such a good lawyer, Sam, and plus your sensitivity and empathy. You know, I, I really believe that, you know, really good lawyers are compassionate and have empathy and they really understand the emotional side, the mental health side of what's going on here versus just going to get the win and the fight. Right. Mm-hmm. And you're in such a sensitive arena, but you're the perfect, you're the perfect person to be there, Sam. So because of your demeanor and your, your grace is really a, a bright thing to watch. So I really appreciate you doing this with me today. And I hope that uh, maybe someday you'll come back and we'll talk some more. And I know that I'll be in Las Vegas to see you here, hopefully in the next uh, few months or so. But yeah, thanks for, thanks for coming. Yeah. Thank you very much for the uh, the kind words, especially. And it was a pleasure to, to be here. Happy to come back anytime. That'd be great. So uh, I want to sign off again. You're listening to trauma trial and transformation. And I hope that everybody out there today will get grounded Have a good day and spread some love. Thanks very much. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. If you want to share your experience as a witness, please forward your information to info at juliethuck.com. For more information on Juliet's 30-year career in the courtroom, visit us at juliethuck.com. There you can find her books, The Equation of Persuasion, and 50 Ways to Get Your Way, available on Amazon. Remember to follow and subscribe to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation wherever you listen to podcasts.